my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we will be visiting the home of Rutherford Bertrand Hayes, 19th President of the United States, and his birthplace in Delaware, Ohio, our second straight visit to the Buckeye State and the home state of yours truly. Rutherford Hayes is born on October the 4th, 1822, in the West Room of his family's home in Delaware, Ohio. Rutherford Burchard will be named for his father, Rutherford, and then his mother's maiden name had been Burchard. The Hayes family was Scots and English, with George Hayes arriving in Salmon Brook, Connecticut, from Scotland in 1680. His grandfathers, Rutherford Hayes and Roger Burchard, both fought in the American Revolution. Rutherford Hayes, his father, was nicknamed Ruddy and was a blacksmith and farmer before becoming a merchant because his father believed he was too weak for physical labor, and they lived in Wilmington, Vermont. There in Wilmington, he met Sophia Burchard, and he was so taken by her rosy cheeks and her optimism. I myself have rosy cheeks, so I kind of liked that. She was devoutly religious and very well-read and intelligent and attended a district school as a young child, and so that really attracted Ruddy as well. Their first son, who they named Rutherford Burchard, was stillborn, and Ruddy took it very hard while Sophia felt like she had been seasoned by losing family when she was young. Her parents both died when she was at a kind of young age. And so the Hayes then decide to leave all of that sadness behind in Vermont. Little do they know the sadness will follow through with them. And it takes 40 days to get to Delaware, Ohio, which is just a little bit north of Columbus. And they took the Cumberland Trail And when they arrived in Delaware, they were very prosperous, and they had a beautiful brick house in the center of town. And they also owned some associated businesses, including a general store and a distillery. Unfortunately, there's going to be a typhoid breakout, and it's going to kill their daughter, Sarah Sophia. And then three days later, Ruddy will die as well. Young Rutherford the president, will be born 11 weeks after his father and his sister died. He will be the second of our three presidents to never see his father, joining Andrew Jackson and then Bill Clinton on that list. Now, interestingly, Sophia is going to also name this baby Rutherford Burchard. You don't hear that too often, but it seems like in this case it would have been a tribute not just to the older brother, but then that it would also be a tribute to the recently deceased father. Three years later, Rutherford's older brother, Lorenzo, will fall through the ice while he's skating, and he also dies, leaving just Sophia and her two children, her daughter, Fanny, and then Rutherford. Sophia will never remarry, and she supports her family by renting out her farm. She is lucky in that she has a close relationship with her brother, Sardis, who comes to live with them for a time, and also loans money to support the two children, including money to fund all of Rutherford's education throughout his entire adolescence. Without his father, Rutherford looked up to his uncle, Sardis, and he developed a very close relationship to his sister, Fanny, who was his confidant throughout his entire life. 
One of the stories I read indicated that his mother refused to let him play outside of her sight, maybe because of how many children she had lost that she wanted to make sure she didn't lose this one as well. And so he did not play with other children outside of his sister until he was nine years old. And it wasn't uncommon for Rutherford to have played with dolls rather than toy soldiers. The closeness between Rutherford and his sister sometimes bordered on the unhealthy. He did not attend her wedding because his emotions for her were too strong. And at one point she wrote him, quote, you are daily the object of my waking thoughts and nightly of my dreams. He visited her in 1842, and when he left, she could not believe he departed and became very violent, having to be committed to an asylum. He lived in Lower Sandusky, now known as Fremont, so that he could be closer to her. But it was also costly to his career. And in one of the books I read, they talk about the half decade kind of spent in complete obscurity because of this decision. When she dies in childbirth in 1856, he wrote, quote, During all my life, she has been the dear one, and then said to his wife, Lucy, You are Sister Fanny to me now. Now, I don't want to be judgmental. I have a close bond, I think, with each of my siblings, and yet I would never write to them or talk to them like that. I mean, there's no getting around the fact that this was a different time, and certainly that these two children had grown up so close to one another. But at the same time, like I said, I do think it kind of points to an unhealthy balance between the two. As a child, Rutherford's highlight of each year was going to the family farm in Vermont. And I can just say that in my visit there to Calvin Coolidge and to Chester Arthur's birthplace, I fell in love with Vermont. So if it's anything like what I experienced, I'm sure I can relate at least there. He enjoys making cider and sugar while he's in Vermont. And I didn't get to do those two things, but sounds good. He also felt from the beginning that he was destined for some kind of greatness, writing at 19 years old, quote, I am determined from henceforth to use whatever means I have to acquire a character distinguished for energy, firmness, and perseverance. And I just have to say, I'm kind of underwhelmed by Rutherford as an adult. To me, you know, certainly he looks the part, and I think that gets him everywhere he needs to be. But in terms of being great, I don't think anybody's ever said that about Rutherford Hayes. And in the interest of full disclosure, now is as good a time as any to mention that my first job after undergrad was to work at the Rutherford Hayes Presidential Center in Fremont. And there I got to become very acquainted with the life story, the history of the Hayes family, as well as with Rutherford and his upbringing, but certainly the stature that he is going to hold in his community and certainly in the state. And I think in some ways I kind of got blinded to how the rest of the world saw Rutherford. You know, you kind of do buy into the mythos at a place like that. And it's very clear why his son Webb was so dedicated to wanting to commemorate his father. I think any of us, you know, certainly see the best attributes of our parents. And in his case, you know, his father had been a president and might have been the very most honest person he knew. In terms of being great, though, I don't see it with Rutherford Hayes. And it's a little difficult to see how anybody else could come to that conclusion as well. He's one of the most forgotten presidents. You know, there are all sorts of jokes to that 
capacity. And it's a lot owed to the fact that he'll serve just one term. He comes in the middle of this threesome of Ohio-born presidents. And to my mind, is one of the least interesting in terms of you know what he really was standing for at a time when really would have wanted somebody to come down hard on one side or another. His presidency is predicated on this compromise made where he's going to let the federal troops recede from the South and declare that Reconstruction is over. And with that, we have the introduction of the Jim Crow era. And so to me, it's kind of difficult to divorce that from this insistence on being great, but without really anything to to really distinguish that. With all that said, he does have some really standout moments when it comes to his military service. But in terms of being great, he falls a bit short of that for me. In terms of his biography, H.J. Eckenrode is going to write that, quote, Hayes was never a solitary a boy of moods. He had no seasons of exaltation followed by depression, which, by the way, we've been talking about a lot of presidents who fit that description. Instead, all of his life, he liked society and shone in it a modest way, not sparkling, not brilliant, but pleasing and satisfying. He had a gift for friendship. And everything I've read, I would agree wholeheartedly with that summation. I think he is a very pleasing and satisfying, if not particularly brilliant or sparkling. He was very modest, and that is something that you see carry throughout, mixed well with most people, made friends very easily, and kept his friends for life. From an early age, he was fearful of going insane, as some people in his family had. But other than that, he was generally easygoing and was a skilled conversationalist. On train rides, he liked to sit in the smoking car so that he could strike up those conversations, and he had a great memory for names and events. And this is where that old adage that 90% of anything is showing up, I think he did that. I think he shows up for situations. He was not necessarily a great orator, but he did take time to construct solid speeches, and he delivered them pretty well. Rutherford was an outdoorsman, and he liked to hunt and fish. He liked to take brisk walks. He liked to play chess and landscape his yard. He loved to read and developed a very significant personal library. And I can attest to that. One of my jobs when I worked at the Hayes Center was I had to help catalog in some of the back rooms of the museum. And I even had to work for a few days looking through all of the books that Hayes had there and became completely filthy. Like they were just so covered in, you know, they'd just been, they were aged. (laughs) Rutherford was baptized as a Presbyterian and attended Episcopal services while he was single. And then Lucy, his wife, is going to introduce him to Methodist services, and that's where he will attend. He never joins the church to become a communicant and claimed no creed and said he wanted to be a Christian or at least help other Christians. He gave to various churches, helping raise funds for a Methodist church and defended the Catholics when they started to have a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment in the country. As president, he instituted scheduled hymn singing on Sunday evenings. In terms of his education, Rutherford has as one of his great assets his uncle who cares for him. When Rutherford gets to study under a schoolmaster in Delaware named Daniel Granger, and then Sophia will eventually acquiesce to letting him go to school, but she is 
desperate for him to become a minister and stresses throughout his adolescence that he needs to avoid going into politics. At 14 years old, he will go to the Norwalk Academy, a Methodist school, and then is sent to Isaac Webb's Preparatory School in Middleton, Connecticut, where Sophia will receive word that Rutherford was, quote, industrious, well-informed, polite, and respected by his peers. And I think you could say all of those things throughout his entire life. At 16, he enters Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, where he was a good student focusing on philosophy and debate. He helped orchestrate a revolt against a chemistry instructor, and I wish I had more information about that, but I don't. He was a Whig politically, supporting William Henry Harrison in the 1840 election, and then is the class valedictorian in 1842. After that, he studies law for 10 months under Thomas Sparrow, until in 1843, he is sent to Harvard Law School, where he studies under Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, historian Jared Sparks, and legal scholar Simon Greenleaf. He graduated in 1845 and was admitted to the bar two months later. He is then the third president to go to Harvard after the two Adamses, and the first in Harvard Law School. After graduating, he opened a law practice back in Lower Sandusky, and remember he moved there to be near his sister, and he opens that practice with Ralph Buckland, and when I worked at the Hay Center, those are the two big names in Fremont, Buckland and Hayes. He started to develop what he thought was tuberculosis and flirts with enlisting in the Mexican-American War for a chance to go south, maybe to help with that TB, but instead takes a trip to Texas with his uncle instead. He moved to Cincinnati a year later, forming the law practice of Corwin, Hayes, and Rogers, and supported the Whig and then Republican candidates for office. Finally, in 1858, which is a kind of late start when you consider the other presidents that we've been talking about in recent weeks, he is appointed city solicitor for Cincinnati by the city council, but then is elected in his own right before losing that office in 1861. For him, though, it's fortunate that the war is breaking out at that point because this is going to be what he builds his political career on. He serves in the 23rd Volunteer Infantry Regiment, rising to Major General and seeing some 50 different engagements, and was wounded several times. And one of the future presidents, William McKinley, will actually serve under him, interestingly enough. He had his horse shot out from under him four different times and was seriously injured once. He's appointed a Judge Advocate General and then Lieutenant Colonel. He was in action at Antietam and gets injured at South Mountain in 1862 and had to be carried to safety. He fought under General Philip Sheridan in the Shenandoah Campaign and then to Cedar Creek in 1864, where he was promoted as Brigadier General of Volunteers and then breveted into the Major General of Volunteers before he eventually resigns the Army at the close of war. He is nominated for Congress in 1864 while serving and writes a letter that, you know, your cynicism may vary, but he writes this letter that says, an officer fit for duty who at this crisis would abandon his post to electioneer for a seat in Congress ought to be scalped. And they publish this letter, and it only, of course, intensifies the heroism that people view Hayes with now. I'm a little cynical, I gotta say. He was elected when the letter was leaked. (laughs) 
yeah, I'll just leave it there. And then is elected and reelected in 1866. He is a Republican man through and through, but finds that he has no stomach for the radical Republicans. And that is what they call that wing of the party at the time and their wars with President Andrew Johnson. And so it's kind of relieved when he gets nominated for governor in 1867. He campaigned for a state amendment to allow black men to vote. And while that amendment failed, he was narrowly elected and as governor will press for voter reform and civil service reform and is going to be a pretty decent governor. And this is going to be what catapults him then in 1876 to be one of the front runners for that nomination coming after eight kind of scandal filled years with his statesman, Ulysses Grant. So that's where we'll leave the rise of Rutherford Hayes. And when we come back in season two, We'll talk about that period right before becoming president and certainly what's going to happen right on the precipice of his election, all of that election intrigue with 1876. Like I said, one of the things that really stands out about Rutherford Hayes is the fact that he is going to serve just one term. And, of course, the fact that it's going to be with all of this great controversy attended to it. And that shouldn't necessarily reflect poorly on Rutherford Hayes, but it does kind of limit your ability to become a dynamic leader. And I would argue he doesn't really want to be a dynamic leader. It doesn't seem like he is much of the mind that he should be like Lincoln or a Jackson. He wants to be more in line with some of the other Republican presidents that we'll be talking about where they're game managers. They want to keep things running, defer to Congress, and, you know, let everything else fall where it may. And while that can be good for keeping a steady hand, I think that's more what we should recognize than talking about him in terms of greatness. So now let's turn our attention to talking about the home in Delaware. Rutherford and Sophia build this beautiful brick home in the center of Delaware, and it's described as being two stories, the first in that town. Sophia moved from that house a year after Ruddy dies, and the home then is occupied by various Delaware businesses. In 1876, when Rutherford was elected president, Rutherford's birthplace was occupied by J.S. Reichert's Ware Rooms, a furniture store there in Delaware. In August 1910, just like with Jefferson's home, just like with Washington's birthplace, a fire breaks out in the home and destroys it, making him then the third whose home is completely destroyed. Standard Oil, yes, that Standard Oil, buys the property and built a gas station on those grounds. Today, it is a BP gas station. Yeah. In 1926, the Daughters of the American Revolution erected a bronze plaque that was attached to a stone tablet in 1955. And nice enough, the Standard Oil Company is going to shell out the money for the stone tablet. On the tablet read, quote, this tablet marks the birthplace of Rutherford B. Hayes, 19th President of the United States, born October 4th, 1822, placed by the Delaware City Charter Daughters of the American Revolution, November 1926. Now, that is where the story could end, but this is one of the great stories of where a president's home is revisited over the years, and we will see where 
there is going to be a renewed emphasis on really celebrating this birthplace and celebrating a president who deserves some notice or notoriety. In February 2020, a project called, quote, Hayes Comes Home finished its efforts to properly commemorate Hayes' birthplace with an added historical marker providing information about the fate of the original building, as well as a statue of Rutherford that was put down the street right on a street corner. There's a fountain and then an historical placard that gives a lot of information about Hayes and his family and a lot of biographical details about his life. It's operated by the Rutherford Hayes Heritage Fund, and they also placed a bust at the local high school. The new placard reads, Rutherford B. Hayes, birthplace, 19th president of the United States. At this site, on October 4th, 1822, Rutherford B. Hayes was born to Sophia Hayes. Hayes' father, Rutherford, had passed away from a fever three months prior to the birth of his son. The Hayes family were renters on the property, originally owned by Delaware founder Moses Bixby, while their home was being built at the northeast corner of William and Franklin Street. Sophia and her three children moved to their new home in 1823. The brick home fell into disrepair and was purchased in 1921 by Standard Oil. Learning it was a presidential birthplace, Standard Oil offered to put up the first $500 and sell the home back to the community for $8,000. Many organizations worked to obtain the funding to purchase the home, but were able to raise only $4,760. The home was demolished and a marker was placed in front of the gas station by the Delaware City chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution to identify where Hayes' birthplace structure once stood. In 2019, a statue of Hayes commissioned by the Rutherford B. Hayes Heritage Fund, was placed at the corner of William and Sandusky Street. Now, I do have a bit of a theory about some of the birthplaces that are more neglected than others. And certainly when you see James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and then down the road, some of our later presidents, who will also have these kind of minimal presidential sites, a lot of times they also have really well-maintained homes. And so when I think of like a Benjamin Harrison who has maybe the most neglected birthplace of any, where it's one side of a historical marker, it also stands to reason that he has a beautiful home in downtown Indianapolis that is well-maintained. And so very rarely do you have a president whose birthplace, home, and gravesite are all neglected. It's usually going to be one or the other. And in some cases, it's all three. If I think about like the Adamses, for instance, all three places have really well manicured and maintained places. But in other cases, like with Jefferson, he has a pretty neglected birthplace at the moment, but it's because he has Monticello up the mountain, right? And with Rutherford Hayes, it was probably okay for a while that he had just this rock in front of a gas station because he had the Hayes Presidential Center and the home Spiegel Grove at Fremont that you were able to then take in more of his life. And so that is something that I want to kind of keep in mind as we go to some of these birthplaces that it might be that they're not as glamorous or uh, pronounced as somebody like a William McKinley or certainly Abraham Lincoln, but it's because they might have another site attached as well. This is a story where I went to the site twice and actually was going to be rewarded for that. 
The first time I went was in November of 2015. Remember, that was the year that I first started this quest to go to all the presidential sites. I was coming back from Columbus. I'd gone to the Ohio State University's football game the day before, and any Buckeye fans out there will remember this was the Michigan State game that was played in the rain. We were expected to win, and instead were just horrified at how poorly the Buckeyes played that day. And so I was not in the mood. I had had breakfast with my friend Alex. Shout out Alex Syker in Omaha, Nebraska, and his parents listening in Columbus. And we had breakfast there in Clintonville. And then on my way home, decided I was going to try to track down this presidential site that I'd heard about that was pretty neglected. And so I turned off in Delaware, found the BP gas station, and it was exactly as advertised. There was a gas station, BP everywhere, and you're familiar with their green signage. And there in the the front, like on the street, is this giant rock. It has that tablet that's going to read President Hayes' birthplace and then a gas station behind it. And so if you were not a thinking person, you might believe that he was born in the gas station or on the gas station grounds. You know, there wasn't a lot of information about what that home might have looked like. Remember, the tablet just says that it marks the birthplace. It doesn't say that the birthplace was destroyed or anything like that. So, you know, cognitive dissonance would suggest that, you know, maybe he was born in this gas station. So clearly one of the least taken care of. And I was kind of embarrassed getting out of my car, as I recall, to take a photo. It was very overcast. There was, you know, gas station business going on. And there I am, you know, taking a photo of this. It wasn't like in the in between two pumps or anything like that. But everybody else was there for the gas station, not for the Hayes presidential birthplace commemoration. Now, over the next several years, I followed as different high school students would be putting together projects about how to better commemorate this birthplace. And I am completely all for it. And because I still have friends who work at the Hayes Presidential Center and follow them on Facebook, even before this project, I was able to kind of understand where the project was at the different uh, places. And so when they finally unveiled these plans and then put them into place, they actually got them done. It's really great to see this birthplace become more historically relevant. And so This January in 2021, on my way back to the desert, I went through Columbus, and on my way down, I stopped in Delaware to get to take in this new birthplace commemoration. I turned a little early, and so I was able to go through Delaware from a different way than I had gone back in 2015. And so the first thing I came across was the statue of Rutherford Hayes, and it was very prominent. This is not a city that has a statue on every corner, like a rapid city in South Dakota or anything like that. So it was prominent to be able to see Rutherford Hayes standing there. I parked and it was a very busy morning, even if it was in January, and people were all over this downtown. It was a very vibrant community, vibrant downtown, and there were people taking photographs of Rutherford Hayes' statue and his placards that were all around. And it struck me that it's very rare that you have a presidential birthplace that does have all of this commemoration in a downtown area. 
The closest I can come to is Andrew Johnson, who we talked about in episode 17 in the middle of Raleigh. And then down the road, when we talk about some of the other presidents, but most notably Theodore Roosevelt and Donald Trump, they were born in their downtowns, right? Like in New York City, in Jamaica, Queens. When you think about George W. Bush being born in Yale University, you know, these are pretty vibrant communities. But up until now, we've mainly been talking about these private homes that are off the beaten path. Not so with Rutherford Hayes's. And so it was nice to get to see other people, you know, some who were probably going to get coffee or to get breakfast. And instead, we're taking a moment to recognize and take in the history of this great man or great Delawarean who had been born in their midst. And so then I went up the street just a little bit to the famous BP station, and they had replaced the tablet, the marker that was in place before, with the much more historically engaging placard that's there now. And so this was a complete, to my mind, 180 from what had been there before, and definitely gives you a better sense of the historical nature of this. And I think with that information, it definitely gives you a sense of you know the decision-making that comes into trying to keep a place like this and make some restoration moves. You know, we'll see with other presidential birthplaces and then the homes where some of them do get destroyed. And it always kind of boggles my mind when you talk about James Knox Polk or William McKinley, where they're going to have these homes that are just completely demolished. And it does kind of have to happen if the place's fire trap or has been abandoned and starts to become a public nuisance. And so while it's sad for us as historians, it makes sense when you think about it in, in terms of its context as a city and a place of business. And so that was something that I definitely wanted to address as well. In terms of what this birthplace commemoration tells us about the president and his presidency. Certainly with Rutherford Hayes, I feel like there is a reckoning about his place. You know, certainly he comes up as a topic every four years when we talk about presidents who win the presidency without winning the popular vote. We almost always have to drop that he lost the popular vote and probably would have lost the electoral college without the uh, electoral commission of 1877. And So in some ways that also might contribute to his being overlooked or the Hayes Center feeling like they have to go above and beyond to justify this attention being paid to a figure who didn't win the popular vote. But it also suggests to me something where we do see a state in a city really trying to commemorate and reckon with a figure that might have been more overlooked now the Hayes Presidential Center had always been privately financed. And so, you know, whatever Webb Hayes wanted to do to commemorate his father, that was kind of his business. And so when it came to recognizing the birthplace, I could kind of understand why for so long it was just a matter of, well, you know, what are we going to do? You know, and it was nice enough for the Daughters of the American Revolution and for Standard Oil to want to commemorate it in the first place. You know, we still don't have a president who doesn't have a commemoration of some sort. And I would hate for Rutherford Hayes to have been the first. So at least he had something. And I'm just pleased that that something turned into something greater. And that when you go there now, you're going to be able to get a sense of this change over time. This was just in the time that I've been doing this project, which makes it all the kind of cooler for me. And where it makes it really interesting to see other birthplaces trying to kind of commemorate or 
come to a different understanding of their figures. And there's all sorts of different alterations happening. I talked about in episode five where James Monroe's birthplace was getting an additional building put on it and a visitor center. Same thing is happening at Grover Cleveland, who we'll talk about in episode 22 in Camden, New Jersey, where they're building a visitor center to go beside it. And I'm sure we'll see with some of the more recent presidents as they want to, certainly with families, want to commemorate that president in a more historically significant way. And so it was just cool to see this change before my very eyes, that the site that I saw in 2015 was different than the site I saw this year in 2021. And so I look forward to hopefully there being more presidential sites along that same line. So that's where we will leave off with Rutherford Hayes for this season. When we come back in season two, we'll get to talk about one of my favorite presidential sites, and that is Hayes' home at Spiegel Grove. It's a beautiful home in the middle of Fremont, and, and we have the library and museum, which are next door, and fabulous, great facilities. But you will love getting to hear a little bit more about Hayes and his private life, but then also this amazing house. So look forward to that when we talk in season two. And next week, when we come back, we'll get to see another president from Ohio in James Garfield. And this is going to be one of the first episodes where I went with a friend and got to visit James Garfield's birthplace in Moreland Hills, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. And we'll get to talk about some of the commemorations that have taken place there as well. So look forward to that. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as being a fan of the social media sites. I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.